Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Docterman. And we are the Inglorious Trexperts. And this is The Word is Given, a special bonus episode. Bonus episode. Of Inglorious Trexperts. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, uh, there was some big news this week. Big, big news. Really? There is a new hamburger at Shake Shack. Nice. No, that's not what the news oh. was. There was some big news that we've all been waiting for for a long time. Uh, it was announced. It was it was officially announced that um, Paramount will be uh, has given the green light, the go ahead, leave dry dock for the Star Trek, the motion picture director's edition in 4K UHD. And uh, that's very exciting news. It's very exciting. Um, of course, uh, this one hits very close to home because part of the Troika, the team responsible for restoring this classic film, or in addition to Dave Fine and Mike Matasino, our very own Darren Doctorman. Hey, it's me. Um, <laughs> and I, I have a couple of questions for you about, uh, about, um, about the, uh, the release. Um, and then we will uh, repeat uh, an episode we recorded in our second season in which we had you. You know and, what? Um, I, th I think it might have still been the first season. It might have still been the first season. This is what I get from missing staff meetings. It was it um, was March of 2019. Oh, I think it was. The, I think it was the first season. It was <laughs> it one was point. Time is season. just slipping into the future. <laughs> um, but anyway, the point being, and we did an episode called Wise Guys. Uh, uh, the, the remaking of the motion picture. And uh, in that episode, um, uh, Dave and Mike and yourself uh, talked about the, the path to, uh, to the director's edition, what went into it and what would it take uh, to get a, uh, a new uh, version? Because of course uh, it was impossible to release the version that you did do. And can, can you, can you tell us that Darren? I mean, wh why, uh, was it impossible, as as we know, or not impossible, but it would have been uh, at the disappointing time, at the time in two thousand and in two thousand, and uh, it was released in two thousand and one, um, appropriately. Uh, but it was, uh, you know, it was decided that this was a DVD release, and that's all it would be. They didn't want to, uh, they they didn't want to commit to, uh, you know. Uh, making it in high def at the time. It, it could have only been in high def at the time because there was no facility to do uh, 4K stuff. At least- There was no for, guide for putting it back There was together. no guide for putting it back together. Um, but uh, that's how it was. And uh, it, it, you know, it stayed that way for many years. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, it, uh, it's kind of a, uh, I think of it as a blessing because we are now at, uh, the capability of doing all of this wonderful work at full resolution, you know, capturing all the all the nuances of the film and uh, making it look better than ever before. And you know, it would have been really, really difficult to do it back then. Yeah, and now it's truly archival because yeah. you'll be finishing in, in, in a high enough res that could function as uh, uh, DCP for a Absolutely. future theatrical presentation. Uh, it's kind of future-proof because even as the 8K TVs and things come out, 4K is 
is really all, all, all you need, and particularly given the, the nature at which the effects are going to be rendered uh, yeah. and, the, and, and the effects that are, um, uh, are uh, still the same that aren't changing yeah. the way they were done. You know, what, it's, it's, what, it's, has, what has been announced is that uh, it will have an exclusive time period of uh, streaming on Paramount Plus uh, starting sometime early next year. And uh, and that's the official that's the official line. Uh, they haven't been very specific about any other applications of this. Uh, Great. Well, now that we got you here, let's ask you some questions. So, uh, what what obviously you did some really remarkable uh, visual effects. Um, I, I think of the space bridge, and um, obviously in the um, uh, uh, recreation deck, you could space see the, the 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 cells out the window how much are we going to see things maybe differently than we did in the uh, in the last version of the director's edition? I am uh, not programmed to respond in that area. See, you heard it here first. There you go. <laughs> Getting incredible insight into this. Okay, let's keep going. I got some more questions for you. Um, keep, keep them coming. Uh, so once the film is, uh, is streamed on... Uh, Paramount Plus exclusively, I might add. You won't be able to see it on Netflix or any of the other um, uh, streaming platforms, at least initially. Uh, what are the plans for um, for 4K Blu-ray? And will we see some new VAM? Go climb a tree. Okay, so let me ask you, are there any plans beyond uh, the Star Trek, uh, uh, the motion picture director's edition to enhance or somehow revisit any of the other Star Trek movies? I have no knowledge. Okay, good answer. Good answer. So let me ask you, uh, let me ask you, who's going to be working on this project in terms of the visual effects? Obviously, when you did the original uh, director's edition, it was uh, Ron Thornton and Foundation Imaging. Unfortunately, very sadly, uh, Ron Thornton is no longer with us, nor is Foundation Imaging. Um, so who, who will be your team uh, for putting this back together? Uh, I'm not at liberty to be specific, but let's just say that... Uh, I'm trying to get the band back together. Uh, will there be a new sound mix? I'm afraid I uh, am not at liberty to discuss this topic. Are you revisiting any of the cuts? Uh, you know, I know people talked about, oh, there's stuff in the ABC version that uh, you, 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 you chose not to include. Um, and obviously you know, made, made, made a few edits in, in the picture. Um, is that something you'll be looking at or will it be the same cut as the uh, 2001 version. We look forward to viewers watching it on Paramount Plus starting next year. And God, uh, how exciting is let this? Them, let them tell us what the changes are, if any. I, I, you knew if you came right here to the source, to Inglorious Trespass, <laughs> you would get the straight, the, the, you, you, you would hear things you couldn't hear anywhere else. You know, this, is all, of course, this is all practice for Vegas. My 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 partner in crime here, uh, you know, is is the inside man. He's he he's one of the producers, one of the team that's doing this uh, project. So of course we have access to all this incredible information that you couldn't read anywhere else. Um, Believe me, when when it comes time for me to be able to talk about all of this, you bet I'm going to talk about all of this, and not stop, and not stop. You you're not going to be able to shut me up. But yeah, no, look, all, all kidding for aside, now, for now, uh, that's all I can tell you. 
all, all, all kidding aside, I know how hard um, uh, Dave and Michael and you uh, have been working to get this done, to, to make this happen. And I think there was a real, in addition to your love of Star Trek, there was a real personal reason for that. And of course, it was, you know, one of Robert Wise's final wishes um, to see, obviously, the director's edition realized, but now, of course, to see it truly um, close the book on it, in a sense, that it would be a version that, you know, will be complete. He definitely wanted it to be the definitive version of the film. And, uh, you know, we've been trying for a long, long time. For years, Captain, for years, you've loved it. Um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a very personal thing because uh, we were, you know, certainly uh, honored and uh, grateful to have worked with Robert Wise on this and, uh, and to see him basically uh, change from something that was a, uh, a painful memory for him mm -hmm. uh, and turn it into something that he was actually proud of again. So Yeah, which is why your next um, special edition will be Rooftops. Right. Yeah. So um, we got a lot okay. of visual effects planned for that. <laughs> well, it was a lot of rooftops. So, you yeah. know, so, so it'll be a lot of opportunities <laughs> for you to change the skyline and things like that. Of course, it was Bob Wise's last film. Um, for those of you keeping score at home, uh, obviously, Darren is not at liberty to discuss, and, and we completely understand and appreciate the position he's in. Of course, as you know, I'm able to say whatever the fuck I want. Um, <laughs> and, 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 and I have to say um, that I'm delighted and thrilled for you guys. And, and uh, you know, I, I'm very excited because, of course, just for those of you who maybe don't follow uh, this as closely as, as, some, as some people do, Paramount has announced uh, September 8th for the 55th anniversary. Uh, they will be releasing the first tranche of Star Trek uh, motion pictures in, in 4K UHD, including the theatrical version of Star Trek, the motion picture, um, Star Trek II, which uh, the director's, uh, their director's cut, not director's edition. Uh, although, I, don't think, uh, I don't think it's going to be the director's cut. Or is it the, is it the theatrical version? I think version? it's the theatrical cut. Okay, because they did release the director's edition on Blu-ray, and I think that's the version that I have on Apple TV in 4K. Um, there are, they have two. There are two versions of it up in streaming right mm. now. I think. I think they're yeah. still streaming. And, and, and then they're going to release um, Star Trek Three and Star Trek Four as part of that initial salvo. Yeah. And uh, then they will be doing. And again, we're not telling tales out of school. This has been announced, but uh, Star Trek uh, uh, Five six and seven curiously saying that that concludes the voyages of the original crew right. um okay and then uh the final box will be um first contact along with insurrection and nemesis right so run don't walk to get that one no i'm of course i'll be buying all of them what can i say i'm a completist and uh and uh it, it's very exciting this is something because you know these transfers were done very early and for those of us who obviously bought them on videotape and then later on Laserdisc and then on DVD and now a special edition DVD and then special lure edition DVD. This is it. This is, this is the definitive versions of, uh, of the films. I don't know if there'll be future uh, special edition material. I know Roger Lake created some really wonderful special edition material for the 50th bo box set, but of course yeah. those were old 
transfers of the films. Right. Those are the uh, those are the Blu-ray transfers. Those are the Blu-ray transfers, which are not great. So I'm so excited about seeing even Star Trek Three. I'm so excited about seeing um, uh, them. We uh, love Star Fourth. Trek Three. That's okay. why we. I know. I'm we kidding. Try. I to said be that just to... dutiful parents to it. <laughs> exactly. You can love your kids and still see their faults. Absolutely. Uh, and um, uh, so it, it's, it's very exciting. I want to point out that the team behind this wonderful um, uh, director's edition had nothing to do with the box art um, that you'll be seeing. Yeah, on I, the, <laughs> look, I, I'm seeing a lot of a lot of box art on there, and uh, I, I don't think any of it is for real. I think it's just put out there to just get people talking about it. Yeah, uh, I, I hope so. I, and again, it doesn't really matter because you know when I do it, my boxes, I put them on a shelf and, I, and the shelf is behind closed doors. Right. I don't really look at the box. You know what? I look at the movies. The that's movies. A, that's a good, the movies. <laughs> so <laughs> that's, that's, if those look good, I can forgive bad, a bad box. Yeah. I think it's just because so much, and, and like Star Trek has, has a history of going with bad art. Look at Star Trek 2 and Star Trek 3. You have yeah. these beautiful Bob Peak artwork which were rejected in favor of a collage that looks like it was done by a six-year-old for star trek right. two and in star trek three you have the color by numbers uh like spock crystal uh, spock. crystal spock yeah uh the silicon avatar spock as opposed to again the gorgeous bob peak artwork yeah. um so uh you know it, it's only continuing the uh, star trek tradition isn't it um you don't have to comment on that um, i i don't want to get you in and trouble. i and i won't <laughs> um you know i will say that uh i'll tell you i would love to see and again this is nothing darren can comment on you don't expect to hear him comment on it i'm telling you <laughs> i would love to see because i'm so excited about this director's edition coming out um you know only i think because i feel i want to see the films treated right and with a little more reverence than they have been in the past rather than yeah. as widgets and I feel like Warner Brothers did that with Blade Runner. What I would love is uh, Star Trek, the motion picture, um, uh, uh, 50th anniversary, whatever. It's not close to the 50th anniversary, but, um, or, you know, we're saying the 55th anniversary, it's going to be too late for that. But um, anyway, it doesn't have to be an anniversary. It just yeah. has to be a really nice box that has the, the 4K transfer of the, theatrical version from 1979 the uh, beautiful director's edition from 2022 and i i would love just for uh being a completist uh to have the abc uh, uh the abc version only because i have uh, from a nostalgic point of view i'm sure many people feel this way you know especially there are and and understandably and you talk about this in the episode we're about to listen to reasons why not all the footage that went into the or i should say dumped into the abc version right. um were used in the director's edition because right. there was some modicum of uh, of of taste and and discretion and 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 a desire to tell the story so it wasn't like let's just put in everything that right. was shot right um but you know the abc version <laughs> has that which is you know makes it makes it fun the, the, uh, for what the, it is the core drive of Viger to watch all that is watchable <laughs> yeah exactly exactly um so i mean to have a set like that with uh you know substantial amount of vam maybe a definitive kind of making of piece 
because so many people now are uh, involved with the motion picture are gone. Yeah. You know, but there are a few people that are still with us, thankfully. Bill Shatner, George, Walter, Michelle, um, uh, of course, uh, David, uh, uh, I was gonna say Harold Livingston right. uh, is, is, is still is still with us. And of course, um, uh, Richard Taylor, who worked on the Bob Abel effects, Doug yeah. Trumbull. So there is the opportunity to really do something very special. Uh, and it is a very significant film for those who love it like us and those who don't. Right. It's a very significant part of Star Trek lore. And hopefully and very... opening it up like this uh, with a real, uh, you know, first class presentation uh, will bring in some more fans to it. We'll let them yeah, take absolutely. another look at this and mm -hmm. uh, perhaps reevaluate. Well, I hope that um, Fathom, uh, which has been doing a nice job of releasing the Star Trek movies in theaters and um, I guess is releasing Star Trek four in August for a, a, sh a short term engagement. I hope they'll look if no, but if nothing else, hopefully they'll take a look at uh, doing another Star Trek, the motion picture screening. I know they did one before it was a theatrical version. Yeah. But, you know, as someone, one of the few, thanks to the largesse of, of people like you who saw the director's edition in a theater, it's a very special experience. And I hope yeah. that people will have the opportunity to, uh, to, to, to do that when this, um, when this is complete next year. Yes. Because it's important to point out that the announcement has been made, but the work is just beginning for you and your team. The human adventure is just beginning. Great. Well, look, <laughs> we, are, we went right to the source. Look at all that, all that exclusive information that you won't hear anywhere else other than Glorious Tracks. But I can promise you. They don't call us inglorious continue, for nothing. <laughs> if you continue to listen to uh, this podcast, that uh, we'll get it out of them one way or the other. And, and uh, I know I'm sure Dave and Mike will be dropping by at some point as well. And as, uh, uh, as Gene Roddenberry would say, come back and there's more to tell. <laughs> come back now, you hear? Um, my last question is, will you or will Paramount, uh, and I don't know if you can answer this either, be making some kind of announcement at uh, uh, Vegas? Uh, will they be... Um, I don't, you know, I don't know yet. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure there will be something. I don't know. I don't know yet. Because again, but, these aren't the official conventions. So yeah. anymore, they might do it in Chicago, uh, yeah. but uh, Darren will be there. And, you I'll know, and so will you, you will be there, Mark. You can do your, uh, <laughs> you can do your best um, as I did and failed. Um, <laughs> what? Just, what is it that Sandoval said? There's nothing sadder. Oh, there's then, nothing sadder uh, than a dream that failed. Yeah, exactly. My my dream was to get you to to tell us a lot of stuff that we could promote the podcast and well, keep dreaming. You know, grow our readership, our listenership, but even bigger. But uh, but alas, uh, that was not to be, Sheree. Well, perhaps so, um, perhaps we can find some other way than the spores to spread this joy. Yeah, but I want I want to point out we have some great episodes coming up in the next couple of weeks. Some really special surprises. And of course, uh, this will all be coming to a head at uh, the Las Vegas 55-year uh, uh, mission uh, convention at the Rio. Uh, we'll be doing a panel with some special surprise guests on the uh, 13th of um, Friday the 13th Friday of August. The 13th of August. And uh, as our third season winds down, uh, we'll be uh, getting ready to debut the fourth season, right. going where Star Trek never, never went. went. Yeah, never went. So that'll be great. But Darren, thanks for taking the time. And now we encourage you to sit back and enjoy our episode from the first season 
wise guys where we sit down with Darren, Dave Fine, and Mike Mattesino and talk about what was and what could be with Star Trek The Motion Picture Director's Edition. Enjoy. Hey, hey, this is Chase Masters and host of Disco Nights inviting you to join us every Sunday as the disco party continues with our fabulous guests. Like us. Like us. Like you. And you, our audience. So we'll see you here next Sunday night. Bring your disco shoes. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman, co-host of Inglorious Trexperts. If you're a Star Trek fan who thinks you know everything about the history of Star Trek, check out my best-selling two-volume oral history of Star Trek from St. Martin's Press, The 50-Year Mission, available wherever books, digital, and audiobooks are sold. Hey, I'm Mark A. Altman. And I'm Darren Dockerman, and we are the Inglorious Trexperts. ABC premiere presentation. William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy take off on the Starship Enterprise and encounter the unknown and the unexplainable. Secure all stations. Systems overloading hunter. Captain, we've been seized by a tractor beam. Get ready for the unexpected. The ultimate human adventure. Star Trek, the motion picture. And welcome to our next installment on our ongoing tribute to the 40th anniversary of Star Trek The Motion Picture. 40 years? 40 oh years. God. God, I wish I was alive to have known what it was like when Star Trek came out in <laughs> that theaters. That must have been wonderful. God, I, I just, if only I was old enough. Well... Someday. Yeah, someday. <laughs> someday when time travel is invented. Well, look, I, this is an exciting uh, episode because uh, we're going to deal with um, a fascinating, no pun intended, uh, part of the legacy, the ongoing legacy of Star Trek The Motion Picture, which, of course, is the Star Trek The Motion Picture Director's Edition, which you were uh, very much involved with. I was very much involved with, and the gentlemen that are our guests today, uh, were, uh, we were one big happy crew. Well, we want to hear all about it, and, and we're really lucky to have with us um, the historian, uh, preservationist. Uh, uh, he's a brilliant soundtrack producer. His uh, uh, score for um, Dracula by John Williams just came out um, from uh, Vera Saraband. It's uh, uh, just stunning. 1978, not 1979, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, he was the restoration supervisor for Star Trek The Motion Picture Director's Edition, uh, Michael Medicino. Hello, Michael. Hey, Mark. And hey, uh, hey. Jo joining him is his uh, partner in crime on uh, Star Trek The Motion Picture. Um, he was the associate producer of King Cone, been involved with uh, restoration work and um, many, many projects. Uh, he also was um, involved in uh, Robert Wise Productions and uh, basically uh, was the producer of the, the producer of, 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 of this uh, phenomenal uh, director's edition. Dave Fine is with us. Nice to see you guys. Welcome. Yeah. Hey, uh, look, I, I think that for 
how would you explain this to to our audience? You know, obviously, we've all been huge advocates for um, Paramount revisiting the film for the 40th anniversary by um, giving you the opportunity to upgrade it to 4K, um, the definitive archival version. But, you know, the last version uh, was done, was it about 10 years ago that when you first did this project? It's... Uh it's it's a little more than that, actually. Oh my God! Wow. <laughs> well, we took uh, Bob for to the DGA for uh, 20th anniversary screening at our earliest talks. So, so that's that 19 years ago. ago. Yeah. Wow. Well, let, let, you know, let's... it's amazing how 19 years have gone by, but we've all only aged five years. Right. <laughs> well, it's yeah, so when you the, travel the, at light speed. The light speed uh, differential. Yes. Uh, I I want to I want to say you know because sometimes we get ahead of our audience assuming that they're uh, as up to speed on everything uh, uh but it, like, can can you guys sort of explain what the director's edition is and why it was necessary um that this direct so many quote unquote director's cuts or extended editions are a cash grab this is a very different situation um and and it was necessitated by the fact that uh, the very unique circumstances involving Star Trek the motion picture the, the the film back in 79, there were a lot of difficulties during the production from, you know, com- competing script revisions to uh, the effects were, they were trying to go in new directions with Robert Abel and Associates, and it just turned into a, play, a, a race just to have the film finished. And with Star Wars, which uh, of course had come out in, uh, in 79 and changed everything for everybody, it became a... Um, uh, uh, the studio pre-sold the film, so it had to be finished on time and it had to be in theaters because they had so many tie-ins going on. And what ended up going into the theater was the best of what could be produced at the time. And there were places where visual effects had been put in from first frame to last frame and ships might not be moving. And it didn't have any chance to be fine-tuned or even properly completed. So what was released in 79 was, again, what could be completed, and it's it's remarkable that it uh, had made had been successful. And even on television, there was points where uh, they felt that they needed to expand it. Gene Roddenberry, had, we found a memo that had uh, Gene's comments about what he wanted to have uh, changed before theatrical release, I believe. Was the, I think the he point. wanted to make changes for international release, and at that time, Bob Wise said, well, you know, the film is the film. It'll show a lack of confidence if we change it now, so let's just let it live. But he was never happy with it. And to back up a little bit for some extra context, I started working for Bob Wise and very shortly after I came to California from New York in 1992. Mm-hmm. And um, I worked with him. This was the era where they were first starting to do letterbox transfers so that you could see widescreen, and that was becoming a thing on home video and starting to do behind-the-scenes special features. And I got involved with him um, sort of getting caught up on all that, and I would sit with him on transfers, and then I produced a big behind-the-scenes documentary on the sound of music, and I brought up Star Trek every once in a while, and he didn't want to talk about it. Yeah, he was very uncomfortable. He was, because, you know, Bob was always very much moving forward, didn't look back, but by that time he had done... 38 or 39 films, and it's the only one that he had never had a preview, the only one that he had never been able to do any work on whatsoever after basically an initial rough cut. And you're talking about the guy who made his name as an editor of uh, editing Citizen Kane for Orson Welles. So um, he was always more content, I think, to just let it lie. The Star Wars special editions, I think, and then the sort of this little trend of the time 
um, of doing alternate versions of films. Remember, The Exorcist was changed. Superman was changed. Then E.T. was changed. Um which was a little bit later, but I mean, that was going on. And so then suddenly he was a little bit open to talking about it. And I said, well, you know, I really think we might do this. And I have, you know, a, you know, very longtime colleague of mine. And I think he's the guy that to produce it. And I asked Dave, do you want to take this on? Do you want to like go ahead and uh, work with Bob to make an approach to Paramount and see if we can get this done? It took a while, but well, eventually I want to ask you guys because, um, you know, you look at something like Superman, a lot of these, these changes weren't made necessarily for creative reasons. It was more uh, because at, at, at the time, movies debuting on TV were, were a big deal and they wanted to sell as much commercial time as they could or because of the running times, it necessitated stre- stretching it out over two days. So Superman was sort of padded, you know, to, to fit a right. two-night, two you know, a lot of these movies. In the case of, of your version of Star Trek, the motion picture, it wasn't to fit, it wasn't a commercial consideration. It was... Um, it came from a well, critical. Here, here was the difference. The difference was that although we all have um, sort of um, memories of the 1979 version burned into our brains, and that that's perfectly valid Many and needs to be movies. honored, nobody, I think, was rallying to say this was the movie was perfect the way it was. Right. They were rallying to say Star Wars is perfect, Superman is perfect, The Exorcist is perfect, why mess with them? And so that's, but but nobody was really saying that about Star Trek. There was always a sense that they we wanted it to be better than it was. And that really, I think the flashpoint for that is when they added footage into the network broadcast. People suddenly saw extra character moments and um, and felt, hey, this movie actually can be better. It was, it made such an impact that Paramount released that version on home video. Yeah, I was and a lot of people that, remember yeah. that as the movie. That's their version. Then, right. To then them. they'll see the theatrical and say, where are those yeah. scenes? Yeah. And so we already knew. And in fact, even um, I think we were all there together in 1991. Mm-hmm. Sit Long and Prosper. To Sit Long and Prosper when they did the five movies in one day. Mm-hmm. I don't know how we did it, but we did it. But uh, <laughs> at least here at the local um, L.A. showing, um, Michael Schlesinger, Bruin? who we know as very oh, much um, a historian and preservationist, um, actually was at Paramount at the time and pulled some of these trims to cut them into the film for the screening that was done in Westwood. Hmm. So that was the first time we actually got to see some extra scenes in widescreen on film projected. And, uh, and that print sat around. In fact, when we first pulled the movie to show to Bob at the Director's Guild, the initial steps of talking about this, that was the print that um, that they that they, they pulled, provided. and we had to we tell had him, "Hey, say, this is this actually not." Yeah. The, but you're going to see some of the scenes we're talking about, um, exploring, um, putting back in, in addition to um, giving you an opportunity to basically find the film's rhythm that you would have had if you had been able to take it. Past What's so the first interesting cut. about that version? is that no one involved with the production was involved. You said, you know, the Roddenberry memo, but it was a TV cutter or someone at Paramount. It wasn't, it wasn't anybody. It wasn't. No, the, it wasn't anyone involved. You know, so, um, and it's a very sloppily made, but, as much as we embraced it, we're right. like, oh my God, all this legendary footage of stuff that was in the novelization. Right. It, it, you know, it was fantastic, but it's, you know, the, the, you see the soundstage in the one shot. And the, 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 in a the, different costume. And it did, obviously yeah. didn't belong there. What do you remember about this? Uh, I, I I do I don't remember where I where I heard this, but I thought that Gene had uh, had been involved in the television cut. That it was similar to the memo that he wanted, but it was the pieces that he pulled. Right. That um, <clears throat> he was very much into. He didn't feel that the film theatrical cut was 
the way that he had enough. So he needed right. to go back. And the memo said a lot about that. Um, the other thing that was interesting, of course, as we know, is that they changed the whole memory wall scene where Kurt, where Spock goes out to V'ger and when he leaves the Enterprise, had a different uniform, a, 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 a different, different space, space suit, space suit yeah. altogether. So and when they Kirk put, follows it, him. Right, Kirk follows him out in a different spacesuit. So, and then there's one shot that had a lot of scaffolding and because the mat wasn't finished yeah. around it. And you can even, in widescreen, you'd even see a crewman opening and closing doors. But the right. point that I'm making is, is that, you know, we were talking about different cuts. Even that theatrical version in 92 left off the uh, uh, Kirk leaving the space, right. the, 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 the Enterprise, because you would see all of that. And when they had it on television and it was... Uh, 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 Window boxed or, or just, yeah. Well, yeah, one, when one, it was one full screen, screen you were able to cut off a lot of the scaffolding. Yeah. So it made a lot of sense to have, to be able to show that. But well, I thought it was interesting that that's yet another cut at the time. Th- those those uh, particular shots were uh, were like an albatross. Every time someone would talk about uh, after we finished the director's edition, they said, "Well, why didn't you put in the the you know Kirk going out of the uh, out of the ship in the spacesuit? Because it's not supposed to be in the movie. That's why." Well, I want it, to talk about that, but it's, it's also <laughs> rather slow it's and awful looking. So. It's but, awful. But let me ask you guys because I think there's a bigger issue, you know, that you have, uh, which is of course. Um, it's very rare anything like this has ever been attempted. In the case of like the Touch of Evil restoration, Orson Welles was long dead right. when this was done. It was based on his copious notes and memos, of course, because that film had infamously been recut by the studio and actually new footage was shot um, and, uh, and Orson Welles sort of semi disowned it i mean it's still you know genius and then there were a couple, you know about i guess 10 years ago or 15 years ago there was a new guy but this was very different because you had the director who you were working very closely with yeah. in terms of the restoration and can you talk to me a little bit about sort of your memories of bob wise working with him his input and of course how you got sherry lansing to agree to finance this undertaking because of course it's not an inconsequential and uh, uh, project, and Star Trek: The Motion Picture, you know, is not regarded, you know, like a Citizen Kane or like uh, you know a lot of films that were necessary or Casablanca, where um, you could see the studio jumping at it immediately. Right. You know, uh, it's a very different kind of perception. Even people like Leonard Nimoy, who dismissed the movie unfairly, obviously mm-hmm. we all believe. Um, tell me a little bit about what it was like working with Bob and Bob's. Uh, you know, approach and having the director there to lean on for his input. Dave, you were the you were the spearhead, actually dealing with the studio people on this. Right, I'm going to let Dave <laughs> talk about that. I want to just say about Bob personally is that, you know, I mean, very obviously very accomplished, multiple Oscar winner, ran the Directors Guild, was president of the Academy, was, is, and always will be, um, as far as I'm concerned, you know, a mentor and a model because he never, ever ceased to be a gentleman. Mm-hmm. He never was, you know, um, I, he could he could get angry on set, and as all directors do when they have to stay in command of the set. But he was always a gentleman, always very helpful to people, um, and just uh, really just, um, you know, when I think of, you know, how about behavior within the industry, that's who and I've I, never I heard see anyone say otherwise. Model, yeah. Modeling behavior after, and I'll tell you the dealing with the studio on this project and dealing uh, as the conduit between the two. There are a lot of times that you know the studio would was was being as cooperative as they could be, but they they we were dealing with 
Hollywood legend, Hollywood loyalty, uh, royalty, which is Bob, and nobody would want to say no to him, and the studio would be as strong as they as they could be with us. And anytime we'd go back to Bob about something, he would always be, you know, be very kind, res- respectful, and cooperate, even when. I felt at times we needed to be a little harsher, a little not harsher, but a little harder, and, and, and at least try and negotiate a little better at here at places. Not that I really want to go into that, but I will say that Bob was a an, uh, an incredible mentor, and, and and but it was he's not who we are today. He is um, truly respected in everything that he did. And, How and he open wrote, was he to the idea of revisiting the film? Did you have to sell him on it? Or was he? Did he embrace it fairly quickly after you first broached the subject? Well, Mike broke Mike broached the subject, and it did take forever for Bob to even talk about it. And he finally said uh, that we should contact the studio and say, "Well, it happened after that first screening we did with him, right? Uh, at the at the directors' guild, right? He basically said, "You really think we could do this?" And I said, "Yeah, Yeah. I think we could." But at the time, also, I just want to point out that we were talking about other reasons to do this. One of the better reasons to do it in general was when we went to the studio. He said, "We want a theatrical version print." The screening we were talking about that we had for the twentieth anniversary, they went through all the prints that they had, and they said, "We finally have a theatrical print for you," and we got it for you, and they gave it to us, and it was again the television version. With or the the ninety two cut because right. it's the best they had both the and the, and every one of them had the overture cut off right that even at that point the movie just had not been in any projectable form mm-hmm. I even think today there's a really pink print yeah the print that's circulating in, which we screened at the American Cinematheque for the fiftieth anniversary of Star Trek oh was an God, abomination know, yeah. you know it's just it's it's totally I have to just interject but, one little point of history here is that there was a one of the reasons why the movie was the way it was in 79 is because it was actually studio mandated that the running time minus end credits be no longer than two hours, 10 minutes. Right. And because to have five showings a day. So in order to also then everybody was a nervous wreck over the visual effects and you had visual effects teams working around the clock for seven or eight months. If you think about getting the team's of Star Wars and Close Encounters working together, you know, all year long to um, and spending a fortune. And it was so, about it was about this time in 1979, this month, mm-hmm, right? That they actually had to dive in and say, "Okay, we got to finish this movie." This was after they they fired Abel, I think, at the end of '78. Right, Robert Abel, the first visual effects right. guy assigned to the project, mm-hmm. and they had to start. From basically scratch, and what is it, four or five hundred shots, something like that? Oh my Some god! Ridiculous it number. was, a, it, it, so. yeah, it was unbelievable. It's an extraordinary. So the idea was is that well, there's Paramount spending all this money. We better see these visual effects on the screen. Right. So, in order to get that two-hour, ten-minute running time, they started pulling out character moments. Right. The idea normally would be, okay, your visual effects come in, we assemble the picture, and we see what can we prune, how, what can we tighten, you know, where can we work out some beats. But they had a set. And then maybe they had a slug in there. There was a set effects. length of the film, right? And they took out sections of of characters and replaced it with equal lengths of footage that was coming. Right. That was and, and Jerry was, was scoring to that, wasn't he? Absolutely. He was, and also what they would do is um, protect themselves against the possibility that a visual effects shot would not arrive, right. so therefore have a character say, state the obvious. Right. So uh, just in case the visual effect mm-hmm. is not there, right. some character is going to tell you what just happened. Right. We're out of it. 
Yeah. Well, the new screen <laughs> right. held. Right. So just in case that just effect shot is in case we can't show there, it, yeah. you've got to explain yeah, it. Yeah, right. So it, it was, yeah. I mean, it was really just everything. Uh, it was just absolutely, in almost every respect, how to not make a movie. There was also Writing a lot of... while you're shooting, editing you know, before you know what you have. I mean, it really was an amazing experience. But there really was a lot of concern as well because Paramount wanted Star Trek to be the new Star Wars for them. So the character moments were not as visual as all the visual effects from right. Star Wars were, and how right. we have you know, John Dykstra, they, and right? And they and splitting the effects, and it was that we John Dykstra was brought on of was working, of course, on Star Wars, and Douglas Trumbull of two thousand and one, and and close and Close Encounters, as we mentioned, but they split it with uh, Doug doing everything internal, with uh, John doing everything outside of Vijer. Was that about right, Darren? Uh, pretty much. Uh, uh, Apogee did. The Klingons and the exterior of Viger, and uh, Trumbull's group did the Enterprise. Enterprise and the interior of Viger, and clouds and yeah, and yeah, that and, kind of and, stuff. and and the sort of uh, animation, right? Yeah, the Robert Martin McCall stuff. Coming, right. You know, I mean, some it's, it's an amazing group of talent putting that well, thing together. One of the one of the things that happened when uh, uh, Trumbull was finally you know brought on i mean he had been consulting with them even while abel was uh doing the effects and it was trumbull who came in and saw them shooting the uh the memory, the, the wall. memory wall sequence and said you know he basically pulled bob wise aside and said i think you want to go a different direction with this it's the the physical way you're doing this doesn't seem to be working let me suggest something and so he brought in Bob McCall to visualize the lone Spock journey through the interior of Viger and making it kind of akin to the Bowman trip through the Stargate in 2001 uh, based on the first-person experiential uh, visual style of that. And I think that sort of that moment sort of took the motion picture uh, from this sort of standard Hollywood sci-fi thing and sort of bumped up the the status a little I bit. I think it shed its origins as a television pilot Absolutely. at that moment. Absolutely. Yeah. The um also we were talking about this the uh the the spacesuits with that the bubble that was there that would allow for reflections. Right. Uh, no, the entire reason know, is the to whole, show the reflections right. in Spock's face of this stuff that he's experiencing. Right. It was it was uh, phenomenal. One of the, one of the things I wanted to point out, by the way, is that there's always been the talk for many years that Robert Abel was that there were so many problems and that they couldn't do it. And and really, what we discovered because I mean we researched everything during the production and then spoke to so many people is that his ideas were really groundbreaking. It's just that he was inventing along the way, yeah. and it was taking way too much time. And he had spent, you know, million dollars without one frame of footage being shot. Well, but it was wasn't that he wasn't capable. It was that the schedule and what he was doing may have been way more ambitious. And the studio got frightened because they yeah. hadn't seen anything. Yeah, and it's it's. I would have thought because I read everything that I could find on the film when I was you know through the years. Mm -hmm. That I would have, we would have found more issues in that regard. But it was really surprised at the amount of uh, respect and appreciation for the ideas that he had for it. Yeah. And I, I, I don't know that there's much left in the film that that um, that they did do in the end. Well, let me take you back to Sherry Lansing. Oh, yeah. saying uh, we're going to give you the money to do the project. You know how how hard was it convincing the studio? Um, how did that come about? And then. 
you know, what was you were sort of like archaeologists, you know, having to find all these elements to, to constitute this this cut. So what can you tell me about sort of the genesis, no pun intended, of this whole Was it like endeavor? the meeting with Admiral Nagur? <laughs> <laughs> I remember Bob No, no this, this actually existed. Um, no, the, uh, the what, it, what we realized is that the only voice that could really make this request is Bob. So we sat down with him and discussed it, and he wrote a letter to Sherry originally. That's, that was, um, you know, I've thought about this after all this time, and it's the only film that, that really didn't get completed the way I'd like. And we'd like to, you know, with, with, our, with this team, we'd like to come in and complete the film if that would be okay with you. It's kind of the way it was presented. And the response was that she contacted, contacted other people in the studio who spoke to us, and, you know, she was saying, listen, of course it's Star Trek. Of course, you know, we have the gem of Star Trek. It's the, you know, Robert Wise, this, this legend. Is her, you know, her response to the studio was, was, see what you can do to make it happen. And uh, with the practicalities of the studio, they they did contact us and we started talking about it. And, and you know, we were offered uh, very little to, to do it. And I said, we can't possibly do this on film. And we came back and forth a few times, and at the time, DVD was very successful. And our thoughts were, and this is, you know, with my conversation with Bob, if we can give them something that almost no one ever gets, which is a a, a finished product that would show them what the film would be when we're finished, we could then say, let's go finish this on film and do it correctly. So with what they had, I said, uh, let's finish it at least in standard definition because at the time that was the hottest thing that was out there. And even then we were talking with Bob about once we're done, let's say, you know, we told them then we wanted to do it on film. We wanted to finish this film correctly, but let's finish it any way we can to get let's it get out there. Let's get them something that they can sell and make some money. So, well, well no, the, intention, the intention wasn't really, we knew they were going to sell For the studio it, it was. We, for the studio, yeah. the, for the studio, it was how can we how can we get something to put out there, yeah. and we were explaining that this is Bob's finished version of the movie, and Bob was saying this is this is it, this is what we, you know what I want, and this is how I want to have the the film be from now on, and I think the the, the perspective for the studio was can, we would have another thing to release, another product, another film to release, right, and. Um, we did go back and say here it is, and they said oh great we're going to put the DVD out, thanks. And but giving we, giving them you know uh, full credit, they used that to sort of uh, uh, highlight their uh, reverse release of all the films on DVD because all the films hadn't been on DVD before. Yeah, they started with they, with they ten going down to one, mm-hmm. and the I was, like I, I was wondering about why they yep. did that. And I'll actually tell you what was to- what they told me, which is kind of interesting, which was that they started with ten going down to one because. At the time, the film transfers that they had were, it was the beginning of DVD, mm-hmm. and the film transfers were not up to date for everything. So they realized that if they started with 10, which was the newest film, they'd have the newest transfer. Mm-hmm. And as DVD grew and they started having the numbers go down, they may be able to get more money to go do new transfers of the films. But they knew when they got to one, which is what we were doing, we helped, we helped set up, uh, created the tentpole for them of those, those packages. That's when they started the two disc sets. They could then go back now up doing these special editions for each one starting with what what uh, we'd accomplished right and then they pin the title you know but, and, i mean also you know at that moment in time the dvd divisions of the studios were the, 
that that was the division making the most money. Yeah. Right. Huge and business and so, I mean, it's changed. It's really, really changed now. So home video is a struggle. There was, a, to be fair, there was a there was a feeling at the time. Um, I'm not happy about it, but it, but there really was a feeling at a time that by doing the director's edition on DVD was the best way the film could be released in their minds. Mm-hmm. Was that that since that's the the cash cow of the studio is DVD, we did it there. Great, we had this great release. Therefore, it was the best release that, that you know the best way to present the film to be the most financially beneficial. We had had thoughts and hopes of even going theatrical then. I I also felt that Bob needed to see it. Bob Mm -hmm. needed to have it finished. We needed to have him screen the movie with an audience and be happy with it. Right. And so if we sat around waiting and waiting for Mm -hmm. the money it would have taken to do a new, basically a new negative. Yeah. Now we don't have to do that. Now we can do a digital, you know, a digital element. How, How involved was Bob through that process? You know, was he actively engaged? Was he, you know, sort of the, at thirty thousand feet, sort of giving global notes? I mean, how well, how did it work? We had an office. Mm-hmm. He would come, you know, um, sometimes more often than not. Um, I sat and watched the movie with him five different times at home, taking all of his notes. Um, and then he would come and, um, you know, and Dave set up this incredible suite of offices that they gave us. That was part of um, the deal to do the project, you know, especially since we were not given that huge a budget, but to uh, set up a suite of offices that had projection um, and that had a, a room for um, all the film elements and audio elements that were coming in that I was pulling and going through um, and that we would look at it. And then different people involved in the production, Todd Ramsey, the editor, would come in. Leonard came in at one time and looked. Um, so, uh, you know, he, he was fully involved. Even when he couldn't be there, we had our marching orders. We knew what his yeah. cuts were like. Was there that... was, uh, Jerry Goldsmith was involved. I would take cuts to show him and tell him that I was making some adjustments for the music and Bob wanted me to make sure that I played them for him. And so, um, you know... Uh, we, you know, he, we had Doug Trumbull involved, John Dykstra involved. Everybody um, you know, I, came I, in. I specifically remember the time that uh, Bob came into the office and we showed him the the titles. Ah, yes. Which we, were, <laughs> we had we had a couple different options to show him. We had Star Trek uh, because uh, you know the, season three versus season one. The movie went out with what I call the Woody Allen credits. Right, right, yeah, white um, and black. But yeah. we actually did get those, in fact, title cards. Right, we did. To, we to got those original. Scan, we got we got scan, them scanned, so. and uh, and they were beautiful. Now and the storyboards called for a much more elaborate um, title they, sequence. Yeah, they had but, they had some ideas, right. and and it was uh, very uh, very elaborate, and. You know, by the time, but this was a case where we felt like we want to kind of just keep. Sort we want to just sort have, of get right? into get into get into the story as as much as we can, and don't distract people with a lot of stuff that is confusing. Right. So and we, we had Jerry's music. We had Jerry's music, and, which is you know, uh, along with the with the titles, is uh, well, we is didn't want Woody startling. Allen. We yeah, but you know, even as as it is in the theatrical version, they're great. This is, you know, we have a brand new font. We have a brand new uh, look at, at, <laughs> at the future. And even with dull white text on black, it was exciting. But Just like a Woody Allen movie. Just like a Woody <laughs> Allen movie. Um, uh, so I, I went in and I, I, you know, put a star field behind it and, uh, and uh, did a little jiggery-pokery with colors and things. And we did a couple versions to show him. Um, one was uh, in the blue range and one was in the gold range. I had a thought on that early on when I saw the Blue Range. We we had 
we did have a preview screening. We had 20 years of a preview screening. Right. So a lot of people had comments about how the film was, and one of the biggest reasons, one of the biggest issues uh, all along was that the film was felt very cold. Mm-hmm. Um, that people felt that it just was not warm and not wasn't human. And that was a lot general. due to the video transfers being sure. terrible. Yeah, they were certainly too bright. Even the the, the Blu-ray is quite bright today, yeah. and that um, and also the fact that Vidra's kind of bluish, yeah. mm-hmm. and the uniforms are very pastel. So right. and there were a lot of computer voices and harsh you know uh, 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 sounds or lack of sounds for that point that left you with just you know a cold feeling to right. the whole film. You didn't and have and red then, doors like you had. Sure, they brought them back. Right later, right to kind of they lighten did. up the yeah. set, but it's like you didn't have red doors. Well, that's an interesting point you guys make too, because you were able to do a lot more with the sound mix than particularly opening up the picture. There was only so much you could do in terms of uh, opening up the negative, and and but the sound mix is very robust in terms of what you did and were able we to were, do. We can get into that. Well, I want to hear down. Uh, yeah, I want to get the punchline to the credits. And then I want to talk about the the, the, so. the the office setup because it was something we, unusual about that. So we we showed him the blue version. And we showed him the gold version, and I think we were we were all sort of mixed about it. We 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 could go either way. Um, I kind of liked the gold version a little better, but and I kind of thought, yeah. well, they switched from gold to blue in the original series yeah. to the third season, and it's like this is like the continuation right. of that, and the movie's kind of blue. But so we showed both to Bob. I kind of felt that I kind of felt that the gold was right. a gold standard. <laughs> it was just that that what we were doing here was something that was special. So we asked him. So what do you think? Do you have any? Any opinions on it? What what would what would you like it to be? And he sat there a little bit and he thought, "Hmm, I think I think we should go with the with the gold. It has more balls." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, he loved the prestige of it. Uh, that's thing, funny. The which thing was I good to... enough for me. So. Yeah, yeah, we clearly. Yeah, he I the final also word. loved when we would show him scenes and he would hear something go by and he would say, "Don't we already know this?" Right. You know, it's like the end of the sick bay scene where Kirk has to summarize a machine planet, you know, sending a machine to Earth looking for its creator, you know, and he, Bob said, don't we already know this? Yeah. Like, okay, we can cut it. So he, he was he was he was thinking through the movie all the time and trying to rearrange things and, and find ways to, you know, get into something, get out of something and make it. You know, well, that begs the question, you know, for you guys, from a personal perspective, how great was it? Here you are working with the guy who cut Citizen Kane, who made The Day the Earth Stood Still and The Sound of Music. And just, it's like, you must have to pinch yourself, you know, say, oh, my God. By the way, the um, room that the movie was edited in originally in 79 is the same room that Citizen Kane was cut in. Oh, that's wild. I I did not know that. Because it was the Arkeola. Yeah, Yeah, that's crazy. Wow. Before we move on from that, I want to get back to the office for a a minute because we did something that was, was different. And... It's important to me because the the goal that we had from the start was we we did not want to use any technology that would present a result that didn't look like it was completed in 79. We were making a 1979 film years later. We were just opening the, the production and uh, completing a film. So even though we had, you know, visual effects that were CGI and and um, you know, so much so many possibilities we tried to look at it as how as how could we have done it originally how would it have been done originally practically but the point that i was making i was trying to make is that we were in the hager building which was the editing building and there were all different different uh, productions in the works but 
we were cre- we were cutting an epic film, and when, when I had many talks with Bob, we were talking about this is a big film, and since we're not cutting on film itself, we need to remember that it's got, it needs to be taken in in a theater or at least have that perspective of being an epic film. So we came to the conclusion that when we were setting up the uh, the editing uh, room. We mounted a projector and we're projecting across, I'd say it was about a 14-foot wall, mm-hmm. so that even while we were cutting the picture and and Bob or anybody else would come in to review it, we were watching it really, big. really big for that room, uh, for, for a film like this. And, you know, I'd had many talks about editing over the years, and when something smaller you know, for a television. Well, you know this usually. from all the editing that you do. Yeah, but I mean, I'm, how, I'm just saying, I, a I, small I, screen and your eye can accept faster cuts. Right. So, you know, so. It, it's it's like between MTV, where you have quick cuts from tele from from everything that the people are cutting for small screens, and that those people going and cutting films, but the, but uh, to to movies where things go by very quickly and visual effects where people are sitting in front of computer screens. The sensibility was to keep things that tight, whereas we had to remember, and this was what Bob would remind us, is that this is a big epic film for for theaters. And when we made, a, when we projected it on the wall, it enabled us to let the shots have their time. Was there anything he wanted to do that you guys just weren't able to do at the time, either because of budget or because of just simple, uh, you know, certain things you, you just couldn't do? Yes. One thing I, that just popped into my mind was that he wanted a cut to Decker after Ilea heals Chekhov, mm-hmm. and we couldn't find a piece of film for that. That's one thing that just popped into my mind. Maybe we can go back and look at it now and we find it, but uh, we, he, he wanted a cut to Decker observing that. I mean, there were a few things that, that even standard definition would never show that were part of the intent. So I'm hoping that those things where we have the higher resolution... I also we'll remember other productions coming in, seeing that yeah. setup, rather envious and say, "Wow, you know, it's like." Well, they asked why. Never, yeah. never. Yeah, why, why are you doing why, this? Yeah. And then, why, why and then after you? we told them, I said, "Oh, that." That makes sense. It makes sense. I mean, yeah. I think we would have been maybe too tempted to cut it too tight. And yeah. when you have things like some of the way that um, we just lost Richard Klein, the DP, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. beautiful, beautiful uh, fellow um, who we got together with every so often, um, but some of his compositions. And then when you have Doug Trumbull's effects, Doug always made shots that could live on the screen 30, 40 seconds, and right. your eye would not you know, make you feel like it's fake. And so you wanted to sort of honor that, just make sure we kept the basic approach to the movie, um, although we did do some tightening, but we didn't want to lose basically that scope and that grandeur, which at least in my opinion, and I'm sure a lot of people share it, it's the only time I think Star Trek ever really achieved that cinematically mm-hmm. well, to that so degree. Well, it's so funny you say yeah. that because I think, you know, for people who are dismissive of the movie, um, They've never seen it on the big screen. They've it's only the, seen yeah, it, it belongs there. on TV or on on DVD or VHS. And when you've seen the film, you know, on the big, it's a whole different movie. And right. I love the fact you talk about the editing room setup and, um, you know, Trumbull's effects. It, it, it's cinema. It is the motion picture. It's not the home video. It's not Star Trek the home video. It's Star Trek the motion picture. You know, it's sort of Star Trek writ large. And and that's what's so magnificent about this movie. And you mentioned about the sound earlier, and I think that is another component that suffered from the original theatrical um, because, of course, the sound department is the last department to sort of have their say in a film. And when the post-production schedule was so short on the original theatrical, 
they got really shortchanged because the sound department has to wait until the picture is locked until they can do their sound work and Especially do their editing. Especially visual effects. You don't Especially know what you're putting in the sound, too. So. so, unfortunately, a lot of that stuff was just not done on the original run. And, and it was yeah. so chaotic at the time that there were sections that were done that didn't get right. used. Right. So right. we actually, designed, when we reopened yeah. it, we oh, actually yeah. found design pieces yeah, that all you need to do is plug them in. That they didn't. That they didn't. And, get and it had some to. of the best, uh, you know, sound mixers in the business working on it. And who is it we just lost? Also, was it Frank Serafini? Frank Serafini. Yeah, so we just lost him. Mark Mangini. I mean, so we had some great, but they had. They were very frustrated because they actually never got to do their job. Yeah. I really need you know? to. I really need to bring in a point that we haven't discussed yet. That's really important, and it's that. In dealing with Bob, there was one thing that that I have to say is just v- v- incredibly important and powerful for us, and that's that Bob didn't treat this as he, we're reopening production of his film and he's dictating how things are going. He really listened to us, and we, we were colleagues in regard to our love and our respect for Star Trek and bringing in and listening to, of, of course, your ideas, Mike, and your, your ideas, Jern about how we can bring this back to being, you know, to bring it into Star Trek realm. Well, the he's thing probably that, also a guy who never thought about this film in 20 years where you guys have been doing nothing but thinking about <laughs> well, the but I think that he years. also knew that we didn't want to change its essence. We right. simply wanted to improve it. You know, it's kind of like um, you've got a really good recipe, but it's just a matter of the spices and just it's the right touch and the right cook in the kitchen. But you don't want to change it, make it a different recipe. We weren't trying to serve a different dish. It still had to be Star Trek the motion picture. It just had to be a finished Star Trek the, the motion picture. The souffle picture. had to bake, yeah. I right. remember the conversation that, that I believe you had with him that was really important was the viewer off scene where, where, where Uhura is yelled at by Kirk about mm-hmm. turning the viewer off. And... On a script page, and you don't know anything about Star Trek, that is cut and dry. Okay, that's what we're doing. And I remember the conversation about, you know, they've been through so much together as it is that that was almost uncharacteristic of of Kirk. And I remember you you debated that. that I don't. I I, I remember you telling us. I think we all have. Rhythmically, as a just as a movie, as a standalone movie, it's fine. But the problem is that you, this is now that they made a big deal of the fact that that rec deck scene is the first time we're going to see the entire Enterprise crew assembled, right? We've never saw them in the TV series. Now we're going to see 400-something people all in one room. Do you really want a bridge officer to hesitate? Do you want your whole crew to see a bridge officer hesitate when she's given an order? And it really was bad that it was also an African-American female. Um, you know, so it's like... Kirk is trying to get the morale of this crew and uh, make sure that they're behind him and that 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 there's trust in him. Well, it's like if they see a bridge officer hesitate, a seasoned bridge officer, you know. um, And and show, you know, Kirk basically, you know, snip her head off. Right, in in public, as it were, you know. So, I mean, that just... It ain't cool. Not at all. <laughs> so it's like, and you, you, this was the thing about people behaving more like they really should be behaving. But that, that was one of the things that you and, and Bob had talked about a lot, is that the character arcs specifically of our main characters um, had to go, uh, had to feel uh, correct. And even though Kirk is sort of portrayed as being out of his element, he was a little bit snippy with everybody and, and overly sort of grumpy. 
Yeah, he mm-hmm. came off as, as angry to a certain yeah. degree during the original film, and I always it always felt hard for me. And when and after watching the director's edition, I was surprised, and I think I even realized it finally because I was so close to the whole thing. I think it was when at the at the the Paramount premiere mm-hmm. that I suddenly realized our captain's back. It didn't mean they didn't lose the aspect of being uh, being uncomfortable, right. but the fact is the the person we grew up with, the person, the character that we loved was now more there than the the uncomfortable person that was misplaced, it seemed, originally. And that's where I felt that... And it's just tiny really little changes a, yeah. that helps... It's helps such a shame. Moments. He didn't like him... Um, I'm trying to think exactly what the word was. He didn't like him, like, um, snapping at people. Right. Snapping at people. He says he snaps at people too much. It's such a shame that the audience for, for, for the film couldn't all be at that Paramount premiere when you debuted it because again you talked about the sound it, it, it's so impactful you know it, yeah. it just elevates the movie so dramatically in terms of the mix that you guys did when you were looking did you have a chance to review all the dailies did the daily still exist or were you just working from original camera negative and trims the we we were able to go back and pull anything that we wanted but we yeah. were certainly had budgetary constraints mm. There and were again, only a handful of shots that we absolutely needed to find, and we looked through all the things. Definitely budgetary and... constraints, and also, um, again, not wanting to open up the can of worms that would result in us changing the... You had, 79 was the rough cut of the movie. That was basic. Yeah. That's, so yeah. it's like, you know, there were a few things that would have just helped for clarity. So, But we didn't want to go in too far down the rabbit hole of... You know, changing everything. There are things we did look for, didn't find, as I said. But um, um, and there, but um, but basically, you know, it was all available. But boy, that would have been a rabbit hole to go down. And and also, as Dave said, the budget wasn't there to do that. We also found that uh, we had a hard time finding any audio for uh, of on set recordings. Mm. Also, there was a lot of uh, projectors and things going on on the bridge that were causing noise. That that a lot of the the lines were uh, eighty yard. Well, why don't you explain why that was? Well, the, the every every little view screen. Uh, for the uh, in the on the on the bridge had a little physical was film it eight millimeter yeah. sixteen or eighteen or eight, wasn't it sixteen I, maybe. I think there were sixteen <coughs> protecting all, of, those all of the displays right, yeah. which of course you meant that every take you had to pull these which, things back and make sure that you had they were looped but it had to be prepared because to make they sure didn't that. want the paintings that were in the original set you know right. it, it, it was this is part of bringing Star Trek into the future but at the time this was the technology they that's, had that's right. what you did you know you projected it did. but it made sound a bit and you had to light the bridge so that all those screens showed up right and um you know, and I don't know if they would have to have had any kind of synchronization issues, right? Always. The sync of the well, yeah, camera they, they, shooting would have always. to be in sync with the projections and, of the And screen. because of that, that because so. of the low light on the bridge, that's why you have the split diopter shots mm-hmm. right. for the, the lack of depth of focus. But to the cast, <laughs> it probably was an amazing experience to spend probably more time on one scene than they would spend on the whole episode exactly. back in the 60s, right? Exactly. Yeah, that's a it's, really good point. It's also interesting that um, when, when Dick Klein was in there doing the color correction on that one, on, the, on our original version the the bridge is so dark and it's it's actually much more moody and much more uh, much different than any other video transfers that have been out for the film but part of that was the, the set really was dark to bring the projectors out to make sure that they were visible right. and everyone's so used to the bright bridge that has been on the other films that I think all the transfers are trying to make it bright and bright and everything it but it actually had a really beautiful moody right. feel 
that made anything that was lit up more intense, even the Spock's uh, beehive uh, control panel. I, I want to I bounce right back to the, the sound a little bit. We had a friend of mine, Chuck Michael, come in Chuck and, an awesome and bring a, uh, a, a small team of uh, sound editors to finally put all this together and you know bring out the little bloopy bits of the Klingon uh, display and uh, and and uh, you know take out the walking on wooden planks of the bridge uh, floor and sort of uh, you know incorporate some of the lovely sort of in the background the original series sound effects just a little bit just to sort to of bring give it alive it, give bring it alive and but also include all the sound effects that the previous team had had brought in for the original release that were never used. Well, it's interesting. You also made the swap of the use the original uh, red alert uh, mm-hmm. uh, in, from the TV series. Something closer to it, it was something close in, in the vein closer. of that, replacing yeah. the sort of and the computer voice. That, those are interesting. Well, well that was I was sort of bringing it closer to uh, that was uh, I assume you classic. more you guys than than Bob. Well, the, no, actually, because because of uh, Bob's edict of you know warming up things and making. The difference between the emotionless V'ger and the, you know, our human characters Organic. on the Enterprise, the, you know, the computer voice was something that was very inhuman, and we we in in a couple spots very we brought in German, <laughs> an, we, we brought in an actual you know uh, uh, an actress to humanize these announcements, right? You know where we kept them. Interesting. Um, but in in other spots, the computer is just, again, saying stuff that we already know. This was one of the things that was kind of like the Gene versus Bob, right? Gene right. really liked the computer voice, yep. I think. And then, you know, but I mean, it, it, it went a long, did a, a long way to making the Enterprise not feel like the comfortable, functional Yeah, it wasn't home. That, right, right, it wasn't home, um, like it felt in the TV show. Right. Plus, and, there was always chatter that said there's more people there, there's more activity going on, the human chatter. Well, we did in the, find in the, that, remember? We no, did I, find I know, I'm like just a saying lot that, of that technobabble that, stuff that's supposed to be just in the background. In the background. Oh, the original okay. version of the film has none of that. You basically have a nothing. quiet bridge. <laughs> with, they laid room tone over it. Every once in a while, if something really was important, there was a beep or something. They did do a lot of work on things like the wormhole. That they mm-hmm. did a finished sound mix on, but which he, we took a little bit further because we really wanted to feel exhausted. Because that's the, the first that. sequence that they finished right. for the show West mm-hmm. Reel. That's right. So that had surround effects and other you know yeah. things already in place. Um, but uh, the bridge really suffered. It just is so, it just sits there lifeless. I got a couple <laughs> of things I want to ask you because we're almost out of time, but um, the uh, obviously we talked a little bit about the CG and marrying that to the practical effects and not doing anything that they couldn't have done in 79, just using CG. Can you talk particularly, Darren, you were the visual effects supervisor, about working with foundation imaging and some of those remarkable effects and going back to the storyboards and trying, you know, particularly that magnificent ending that it you was, guys it have was, visualized? You know, we talked about this in our uh, episode about the novelization that I, I had read the section of them walking on the surface of the Enterprise hull and seeing the uh, V'ger bridge uh, appear and everything. And I thought that was amazing. And I read this before I saw the movie. And when I saw the movie, I went, okay, well, this isn't really what they described in the book, but okay, I suppose. But when we got, you know, sort of rolling and saw the original uh, uh, boards for all of this stuff. A lot stuff, of art for that sequence. A lot of stuff. All of it was... Mm-hmm. All of it was amazing. Harold Michelson's stuff. I mean, Harold Michelson's and and all the guys that at Astra, the Able Company, um, had you know sort of figured out stuff to do this, and then later Trumbull's group figured out other ways to make theirs work. Mister Spock, can that be one of their 
missile, Captain. Plasma energy combination. Don't interfere with it. Absolutely, I will not interfere. No one interfere. He doesn't seem interested in us. Only the ship. But it was so much fun. I, you know, brought in my old friend Ron Thornton, may he rest in peace, who mm-hmm. uh, ran Foundation Imaging. And uh, his great, we had a great little crack team of artists working on this stuff. And they really, they really stepped up to the plate. My goodness. And we have to say that at that 20th anniversary screening we did at the DGA, they came. We, we brought and everybody. Part of the, the dual purpose of it was to show them this on the big screen in 35 millimeter mm-hmm. and say, this is what your stuff has to look like. Right. It has to live side by side with this. We can't tell and any And they had just done difference. Babylon 5 or they were doing Babylon well, no, 5? They were, they were working on Voyager at the time. Voyager, no, they were, right, yeah. Voyager, right. So, and they, okay. they, had been, you know, they had been tops in the TV realm forever. You know, Darren, for years. We'd, we'd watch their work, but when one of the things that Darren brought to us was their Voyager crash uh, mm-hmm. that they did where the Voyager crashes on a, a planet with ice. Snow planet. And it just absolutely blew us away because we you know, were on the verge of saying, is this a model? Yeah. And just to know that it wasn't, uh, that was, and, I, and I've also been, watched all of their work through Babylon 5 and everything else, but to see that it progressed to that point and that they got it. And they were fans. no yeah, question. They were passionate Absolutely. fans. Absolutely. So they were giving and you. Um, we got, we got the, the, fan, the, the most fans uh, from the entire company uh, to work on this. Right. Because and it was, and Bob was up there a couple and Bob, times. Yeah, and we brought Bob we up would, there. and we, we see them all working. And we actually pulled the Enterprise model. A few yeah, models were pulled. I remember yeah. that. That was really amazing. It was an amazing time. And, uh. You know, it's still it's another life in in my mind. It's it's someone else lived this wonderful life. Um, Don't make everybody jealous. But it was no, it was amazing. And you know, I, I would constantly you know go there. I went there you know like four days a week and and watched what they were doing. And and you know was also working on shots of my own. But it was you know going up to them and saying, okay, well this is this looks really good, but it looks too good. Think of how they would do this on an animation stand. You know, uh, think of how a model would look being photographed at eight feet long. Right. You know, and uh, that was that was a little bit challenging to get them in the sort of that mindset to. It's not making it worse than they're used to. It's it's just there's a different set mm. of 
requirements that you yeah. have with optical work. Sure. Also, coming back to the epic size and the, the well, looking sure. at it from that well, perspective sure. is just to have it. But that's why having them at that screening, I think, mm-hmm. was so important. It and was there were some other little bits of verisimilitude that we had, such as the moray patterns. We actually found the original. We found the original moray patterns. You scanned them. Mm-hmm. And, and then, so when we needed and to we enhance we used those. That, we had the lightning bolts, lightning bolts for the, original, the feature right, chamber, right, so. and those are all the original elements. Right. And some great stuff, and they did a great job, uh, you know, uh, mimicking the actual, you know, the V'ger weapon elements and things like that. And one particular shot of that wing walk sequence, of um, which was storyboarded, and it was very obvious. Thank God we found the plate for it. Thank God. Yeah. And we had that wonderful shot with the Enterprise on the screen right. Mm-hmm. And, then and, and the bridge sort yeah. of drooping, uh, moving toward us. Right. With and the low angle shot. Of, it had to be it's, the low angle of them walking we, we were able we to match the We were able to match the uh, storyboard no, perfectly. Uh, and I think great. that we could have gone crazy with that because certainly with storyboarded where it was going to the lightning was going to illuminate the chamber that right. they were in and show all kinds of projected holographic things and all other. But again, but we're not trying right. to change the original. Right. We're that just trying so to make it make it finished, make it as it appeared in your mind after you watched it. Right. That's the right. sequence that I think will benefit the most from the minute the office opens when we get it to uh, film res. Well, let me ask you, yeah, I, you know, I want to go there, but before I ask you about, you know, what's next and, you know, uh, what's it going to take to get a, a 4K theatrical version done, uh, I do want to ask you what sort of Bob Wise's uh, uh, response was when all was said and done and you had that wonderful screening at the Paramount that. lot and this wo- the work was complete. You know, what? I mean, that must be remarkable after we have all a these photo. years. Yeah, I was about to talk about the photo. I, I spent years with Bob during this, before this, after this, and I stayed till he till he passed. And uh, it's funny, Bob, being who he was, smiled a lot, enjoyed a lot of you know events, and I got to realize that there was a real smile that he had, and there was kind of the I'm I'm on camera, I'm around, I'm I'm just enjoying this, but there was a genuine smile that I that I've only seen a few times, and when he. When we were at the premiere and he was standing up at the podium talking, he had that that real genuine smile that sent chills down my spine in a positive way, goosebumps everywhere that I saw. And I just said, wow, after, after all these years, he's so touched and just really, for the first time, felt not, not, just, not just that it was done, but just a, a relief and joy about how much that f- film had improved, and he loved the fact that he would not forever be judged by the 79 version, that now his legacy with Star Trek would be this version and this film, and that this would be forever appreciated as the movie, the film that he wanted to make, and that he was so happy with the team. And I have to tell you, um, I didn't have a camera at the time. Paramount Publicity got a shot of him smiling, and it's on my wall, and it'll always be there, and I, I just get touched every time I see it because I know that that's the... I, I'm so happy, like, It was the look years. of, uh, look of uh, the, an immense weight being lifted from yes, him. Yes, there you go. He, but I mean, and just, I think he said either in an interview or, at, or that night, that I never thought I would be happy with this film, but I'm happy with this film. Yeah. And, and to have the whole cast and a lot of the crew mm-hmm. and Jeffrey Katzenberg, right. it, yeah. you know, um, who all was, come... It's worth mentioning what Jeffrey's role was, again, for the audience right, that may not know. Right, he was one of the people with this sort of, like, production supervisor. And held it all together the, through all the troubles. Yeah. It was one of... He, he had been to the working film, for yeah. Charlie Bluthorn. This was, right. like, his first big responsibility. There is, there is a, a title card that exists somewhere that says 
actually produced by Jeffrey Kasson. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I got to ask you last I, thing before gotta... we wrap up, which is going to be, what's it going to take to sort of get this version uh, a new, you know, to you know, out for the fortieth, or or probably not the fortieth, but sometime in the future, where you can do the sort of final iteration, theatrical version in four K, and then. Uh, also, you know, you if you want to talk about those wonderful bonus features that you created for the DVD and, you know, uh, there's some great stuff about Phase 2 and about what it took to do the restoration, um, if you can sort of lay lay the table for that. I want to go back to right after theatrical, right after the release. Uh, Bob was with us for a few years beyond that, and he saw that... Um, the studio kind of put it out there, but they but it wasn't pushed like a like here's Robert's final or or finished version of the film. And he had had me go back to the studio a few times to say, "Hey, can we get this this theatrical going, uh, or at least the fork the, the the negative, so that the film could live on?" And always it was like that, uh, the response was, "We can't do that right now." Mm-hmm. And I still remember sitting with him at at, in, in, at uh, his home. And he said, "No matter what, Dave, you got to make sure this happens. I need this. I know. I need to know, and everyone needs to see my finished version. And I can't let it just sit with that DVD. And I mean, even in the studio, I think put out a. I don't know what, what it was if they put out a the first high def of the the theatrical. Mm-hmm. But I know that that he was. He was frustrated because it was being treated as if." His final cut wasn't the wasn't that it was there a, a, everywhere. A, a, a bonus offering. Well, that right it was now a it bonus. only lives on and, DVD and is a bonus offering right. on the on the streaming and had the streaming me, the uh, da- digital download. You and, can look at it. And he looked at me and said, "I need you to promise, Dave, you're going to make this happen." And I said, "Every time I, I'm going to go back and I'm going to make sure that we can do it." And when we did the film, as I said, we we always intended this from the start that we were going to do this as a as a feature. So all of the effects work was designed with a resolution for film. Mm-hmm. All of the, the edits were, were completed with uh, us having Complete the material. Yeah. yeah. To make sure that we could do the, 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 the cut, because we knew even at that time we were just going to go back and do it over on film. We and, have all the assets. Yeah. Everything was made sure. We made sure that everything would be available. And there's been, there was a lot of talk that people have said over the years that, well, it was only done on standard. No, we, it, was always, it was always designed. One of, one of the great things that I've found over the years after we uh, released the director's edition was that there's a lot more positive opinions of the film in the universe now than there were before. I think you got a lot of critical acclaim. I mean, when this came out, if I remember, the, the, the response was overwhelmingly positive. Well, and the response people was generally, who had a negative opinion about the movie suddenly realized there is no comparison. Well, people who had a negative opinion on you know special editions, specifically about special editions of Star Wars movies. They said, this is the way you do a special edition. Well, because there was a reason for because this Because there was exist. a reason and there was an honoring of the original and not just something new and shiny. Plus no. it all matched. Our goal was to to have something that you couldn't really tell what we did. Well, exactly. I think one of the greatest compliments we received was when we went to Comic-Con and previewed the trailer. And I remember reading the reviews uh, of the trailer where they said it was a great trailer, but there was no new footage. And we had about 12 new shots <laughs> yeah, in there that right. we had changed. And it, in a, you know, it's kind of funny. On a, on a business side, you could, the more splashy you are, the, the more your career goes forward. The point was, we just wanted to make sure that the film is what mattered. And the compl- best compliment is that nobody saw anything different, but they yeah. enjoyed it. 
And then even when they watched the so the director's edition, a lot of comments were. I didn't feel like there was any like, feel anything differently, but the whole film was better. Yeah, I just it, it feels like it flows better, and I don't know why. Right, and that's <laughs> right. It's it, Jerry that's, felt that too when he yeah. saw those scenes that were shortened. But uh, when I told him, okay, this is how I'm going to do this, so I'm going to cut the music down first, then we'll cut to the yeah. picture of the music, which made it have a very natural right. rhythm, and you know, and, and it he, feels and right. And he says, oh, they should make all movies that way. <laughs> this is this is the only way the film should be appreciated as a finished film. Someone recently asked me about a work cut of, is there, you know, I want to see a release of the work print of the film. Well, there is. I said, you have, yeah. You've been watching it since 79. (laughs) And the new Blu-ray is the work print of what the film is. And to really, really watch motion picture, you need to watch the director. Well, look, I I think on this 40th anniversary, uh, I'm sure everyone hopes that the studio will eventually uh, find the money to give you guys to to take this project to the next level and and, and finish it. We stand ready. Well, you know, we went yeah. through the whole thing where HD became part of our lives, Blu-ray became part of our lives, now, and then that came crashing down. <laughs> yeah. So now everything's digital, it's streaming, but it's gotten a lot easier. So now we're not really hamstrung by what we originally presented was a 35 millimeter negative budget in 99. So if you... But doing ne- that has become much easier. Right. Now we can do digital intermediate. So, But I, but I also want to bring up the fact that we're now in a time of uh, better technology. Right. And Bob oh, was yeah. always embracing the newest of te- newest technologies. And with HDR, where we can get black to be really black, but bright, people are not addressing how bright something can become. And I just exci- I get excited at the thought of, uh, you know, the probe on the bridge scene oh, yeah. in Dolby Vision, adjusting it as it would be in reality as opposed to, you know, what would we would expect in the theater because we can now reach those new levels. perhaps of catalog science fiction movies, the one that's the most ripe and then stands to benefit the most. From, from HDR from, and Dolby from Vision that, and from, from the from, te- tele- technology now. So it could we, be we actually, hope we'll see that day come very sooner than later because uh, it's you, what you did was remarkable and you know I think a new iteration uh, would be even more remarkable if you get the chance to finally finish what you started well, as Kirk ten said, years ago. It was fun. And I want to thank uh, Mike and Dave for being here. And you as a special guest, Darren. You weren't really (laughs) co-host today. You got to be a special guest since you worked on this magnificent project. I am honored. So I want to remind our audience that uh, you can listen to Inglorious Trexperts, wherever you listen to the podcast, every Sunday night at 17.01 hours. And don't forget to rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts. And if you have comments, questions, or ideas for future episodes, you can reach us at Twitter at uh, Inglorious Trek or on Instagram at Inglorious Trexperts or at Facebook at uh, facebook.com backslash Inglorious Trek. And look for us at www.ingloriousTrekSperts.com. Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, the website, Inglorious uh, Trekspirts or IngloriousTrek.com. And uh, you can also get some great Inglorious Trek swag on the website as well. And um, listen to our sister podcast, Disco Nights, if you're a Star Trek Discovery fan. And uh, we will uh, see you next week for an all-new episode. And our monthly celebration of Star Trek, the motion picture 40th anniversary, will continue in future weeks. So thank you again for joining us. And keep on trekking and gloriously, of course.
This podcast is a production of the Electric Surge Network.